This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we are joined once again by Tom O'Brien to begin the first of a three-part series. Uh, This is another patron request, a big one, discussing the book from 1930, published by the Group of International Communists, titled Fundamental Principles of Communist Production and Distribution. Uh, We're back. We're back, baby. We're back. We got Tom O'Brien on deck. We're here to discuss the long-awaited, long-awaited, highly (laughs) paid-for fundamental principles of communist production and distribution, which was written by some Dutch communists, a group of international communists in Holland. Uh, This when was this written? Nineteen thirty. Yeah, I feel like this was written in the early thirties, mostly by. Jan Appel, who is a, I believe, a German uh, dissident communist who is in the KAPD, the sort of like ultra-left uh, offshoot to the KPD. Um, and so that, that was the first draft. And then it was revised and completed, um, as they say, by the Group of International Communists in Holland, um, abbreviated GIK. I don't think there's Holland in that, in that, uh, <laughs> I don't think it says Holland in that, um, acronym there, but whatever. This is translated by Mike Baker of the Movement for Workers' Councils. And yeah, it's okay. So the preface says Berlin, 1930, General Workers' Union, Revolutionary Factory Organization of Germany. Yeah, I went to try and buy the the actual book version of it there's two book versions out there you can buy one of them is like a totally different um translation uh and then there's another one which is like some kind of i think it's like from the 90s where it's like a translation and a new version of it by another dutch guy so i didn't buy that one either because i thought this one is actually well written and a good translation like <laughs> in the way that i mean it's quite readable and it sounds like it's quite close to what you would expect it to be. Whereas the other one I tried was kind of a bit sketch, so I, I didn't get it. Well, I'd, I'd like to be able to buy this. As, I'd like to buy this book, to be honest with you. This is one of the classics, a sort of uh, classic you don't hear much about. It's uh, one of the only attempts that I can think of of a positive proposal for communism that is a dissident vision of communism. It's not an elaboration or defense of statist communism as it popped up. So, so yeah, should we maybe, I know we haven't read, we haven't quite each read the entire book yet, but maybe we should just start kind of with broad impressions of the first sections that we did read. What was your kind of broad, broad reaction? We'll start with Tom. My broad reaction was extremely positive so far, like going through the book at the start, uh, you know, I was quite skeptical. It has some pretty grand claims, it must be said. They said, we are going to do for communism what Marx did for capitalism, you know, by writing capital. And I was like, all right, lads, yeah. Uh, but so 
I was highly skeptical. And as I was reading through it, like at times it would say something and I would say, well, I actually don't agree with that. And then, or I think there might be problems with that. And then, you know, the next chapter they'd say, well, there's a little problem with that. And then they would deal with those bits. So, uh, and it would deal subsequently with those problems in a way that I thought was really very good. I think fundamentally it takes uh, the correct approach, I think, or at least approach which doesn't have a lot of problems. You know, I'm not going to come out and say that there's only one approach to, you know, a communist or socialist vision. But I think that what's most important about uh, this approach is that it places firmly the decisions in the power and the hands of workers and the planning. It makes it uh, a very simple to understand thing for people to get their head around which for me is very important. I don't like the idea of having like a, a goss plan telling everybody what to do. I think inherently that leads to kind of class divisions. So I, I think generically speaking, I was I was really surprised. I was really impressed with the book. Uh, and I've only read about two thirds of it now. So perhaps there are issues that... Uh, I know myself and Jake were talking off beforehand, but some issues we think that, you know, it hasn't really addressed and maybe they will get addressed later on. But uh, I think overall it is uh, really excellent and it deals with the with trying to understand and design a system that deals with the core problems of like the value form, profits, markets in a way that uh you know, actually fundamentally gets to the problems of those issues and is not so difficult that you can't just tell a normal person how it works, you know, and I think that's really important. This book left a very positive uh, impression on me so far, and I would think that it is actually a really, really impressive work of Marxist economics. I would more or less, con- I would more or less concur with Tom. Um, I think it's the thing that strikes me the most after reading all this orthodox Marxism, reading people that are like holding the torch for Marx or whatever. Um, as far as like, as far as like Marxian pedigree goes, the tradition that appears to me to be the most quote orthodox in the sense of trying to elaborate or systematize Marx's thought. I think the councilists, despite their political differences by the time you get to the thirties, you know, um, with Marx, I think overall on, in political economy, they really do the best job of elaborating what their system is supposed to be as, and you know, okay, they call the, you know, the Soviet Union state capitalism or whatever, that seems like an ad hoc category whenever they're trying to talk about, look, there's clearly still exploitation there. So the more of the counselists that I read, the more that I think that they have the best claim to being, you know, quote, orthodoxy, specifically these kind of like red thread torchbearers from the KAPD onward or whatever. Um, not that I think that that's the most important thing. It's just something that I can't ignore. Another thing that I think 
is really oversold to me, especially as someone who read communization literature that says, oh, the councilists, well, it's nice that they wanted workers to control production, but what they really needed was a dash of this hyper-Leninist Bordiga stuff because Bordiga knew that you had to fundamentally transform relations of production. I actually kind of see... It's, it's not fully flowered, but they, these councils do have an awareness that they want to transform the relations of production. Um, they don't need as much correction as the, I guess, you know, beyond the ultra-left, hyper-bong-rep, uh, communizer tendencies seem to think they do. Now, that could be because they're dealing with specific neo-councilists in France and blah, 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 blah. I, I don't know. I'm sure the walking straw man that they're talking to exists. But, um... Other than, you know, leaving, like, uh, other than talking about, like, factories and shit, Marx, I guess, clearly thought that factories were a capitalist form or whatever. I, I don't know what you're going to do without factories, but, you know, whatever. That this actually does do a good job of thinking about relations of production, thinking about how production will actually go forward. Think about the production process. They don't just want to change management. That's the critique of the councilists. In fact, that's a critique that they level at anarcho-syndicalists, or syndicalists more generally, that the writers of this book. As far as the actual plan goes, I think the devil's in the details. I think this would benefit from a better translation, because there was a bunch of times that I thought to myself, what average are they talking about? Is this the individual average? Is it the firm average? Is it the total social average? Um, and it really matters because the reemergence of something like the law of value, you know, the law of value is, you know, quote, socially necessary labor time. It's a sort of like punitive average. That's kind of all it is in a way. It's either me not reading carefully enough or them just being sort of intrinsically kind of woobly about those possible details that could lead to the re to the reintroduction of value type pressures in the way that I'm always afraid of when I'm reading like cockshot or something. <laughs> but the difference being is that I'm worried about this like emergent totality of domination, not the central planning bureau. They are very good about avoiding the central planning bureau. And while I'm not sure that the technology really existed for what they wanted at the time, I'm very confident that something like these principles could be put into practice now. It wouldn't be very hard at all with the technology that we have available. This is a better orthodox Marxism in a way. This is like an attempt to really flesh out the ideas in Critique of the Gotha Program. It's very impressive. It's a classic. People should read it. So I've been time chits pilled for a while. So like picking this up, the main takeaway is we got to do time chits, which I agree with 100% because as a transitional means of labor remuneration, it's perfect for socialism because it renders uh, the relations more transparent in a way that, you know, say money doesn't. In the term, and it gets you and gets like you know the people who are uh, laboring to think about things and the broader goals of developing the productive apparatus of society in terms of reducing socially necessary labor time. 
Whereas with capitalism, it uses this massive productive apparatus in order to increase like the the bulk of commodities. I think the real progressive thing would be to raise like the baseline baseline standards of living for everyone, and then reduce work hours to the minimum point necessary to reproduce society. So yes, they're one hundred percent right to say that we have to have time chits. I think, the, but I think you know time chits and labor time accounting. It's not a way that can completely, in and of itself, expunge like the value form or prevent its reemergence. That process is in part irreducibly political. You know, I don't think you can create like a perfect, like productive motor engine that's going to always produce the exact outcomes you want. Capitalism can't do that. Within socialism, I think there would still be political struggles in terms of like what are we doing? Like what is this apparatus being put put towards? What kind of society are we making and reproducing? That you know would be fought out between different sectors of society, and so I guess one of the questions I've had re- reading this thus far is, there, I think at higher levels of abstraction of social organization of the productive apparatus that we have, you know there would have to be decisions that were kind of made at a planetary level because externalities produced by the system are at a planetary level and resources aren't evenly distributed. So how do you adjudicate that stuff? This seems to kick it over to the workers' councils and some kind of system of spiraling up councils that would make these decisions so far it's been kind of vague on that that's been my main question because you know like say what you will about cogshot at least he understands there does have to be some kind of like common overall plan which i think there does i don't think you can completely localize everything Uh, maybe in a higher phase of communism but i think in a higher phase of communism you wouldn't have labor time accounting either you know you would just have such a high volume of productivity that you know all that stuff would basically be irrelevant and people would just be kind of literally just administering things and maybe labor maybe labor time would be one factor that would be added in but it wouldn't be something that would be disciplinary the same way that would probably be necessary as you're developing people and getting them habituated to this form of society because that's, that's another thing that comes up here as well that we'll probably get into later about um differentials in education and what do you do with that um should we um should we just get started with the intro then, or should we? Die? I I have the I was working off a PDF that I got off Libcom, and I think the intro in there was uh, yeah, Paul Matic. Yeah, Paul Matic Senior. I think this I think uh, this is an EndNotes edition. Uh, EndNotes at one point created PDFs for their reading groups. And they have a very distinct style. I could be wrong, but I think that's what this is. Um, and. Yeah, the palmatic introduction also introduces a point that you said, Jake, that this is Marxian insofar as, you know, the lower phase of socialism would require this exchange of equivalence. Um, it shouldn't be made a communist principle, like, throughout all, you know, low, lower phase, higher phase. Like, at some point you want to get to, from each according to their um, ability, to each according to their needs, which... This is not. I disagree slightly there. I, I I feel like it shows the progression from like lower order socialism to higher order socialism as you, well, maybe we'd take our time on this, but like the idea of the GSU that as you, that becomes more and more of society, uh, like it, it tends towards a kind of much more communist society than I say a first order socialist society. I think it shows the actual progression. Perhaps, but at that point, wouldn't it like be like a lot less of a strict kind of labor time accounting, especially in the sphere of distribution, 
where, mm, sorry, you didn't do enough um, social labor, so you can't have, you know, this extra thing. Like, you need it, your needs far outweigh your abilities. Mm, sorry, like, you, you didn't, we just consulted the black mirror math and you can't actually have it. Um, like, I think, I think there's a way in which this book is accounting for that, even in the lower phase with the concept of, you know, general uh, social, what is it? Uh, general social labor. But, like, I think Maddock is right to point out that this is intended as a lower stage uh, mechanism in Marx. It's, the, this is something that Bakunin and Marx actually disagreed on. Bakunin loved labor chits, wanted to base his anarcho-communalism on labor chits, and never really saw it necessary to go past that um, because this seemed fair enough. Um, and I guess, I guess what I'd say in response to our our uh, shaft blaster posting talking about you know cockshots awareness that you know there needs to be a general plan. What I think, like. The authors here do make a sort of gesture towards there being some need for, like, oversight and coordination on a very basic level. But they're pants-pissingly terrified of positing the, you know, Central Statistics Bureau that's, that's going to become the apparatus of alienation, domination, exploitation. And so there's a real way in which the technical basis... For, what, for that kind of coordination without creating, you know, the, what the phenomenon that Max Weber was talking about, where in a very complex society, it creates a need for these functionaries. Um, and, you know, without something like cybernetics that can, it, cybernetics in the Berean sense of maximal autonomy and a central... A, a sort of central coordination apparatus that only responds to pain signals that can't like just fix things willy nilly, but it can only respond when there when there's like something not working on an autonomous level without that technical foundation in place. This is a bit fantastic. And so, you know, maybe it sounds disrespectful to the authors or something, but but, like, I think it's a real problem in the proposal as stated, but not me sitting here in 2021. It's not really a problem for me imagining how this would work. Um, right. Well, the thing is, in a lot of ways, this is a product of its time. Like, they didn't have computers and they didn't have global warming. You know, they didn't have the technical instruments that could maybe um, help to make a lot of these questions in the uh, the administration of priorities and also the way the uh, they didn't have that in the, the way that like computer technology could potentially be used to basically allow people to consider what trajectory like this apparatus is on and how it's interacting with like nature as a whole um, and all that all of its complexities and look at and consider different plans and, tr and ways that things could go essentially what I think politics would be like under socialism um, they didn't have that. They also didn't have, they didn't have to think about, you know, capitalism as a truly global system that was interacting globally. 
that where there were these kind of like massive externalities, it was, it was still you know very much like an earlier phase of industrial production. They didn't even get to they weren't even a modern consumer economy yet when this came out. Like I would like to push back a little bit on the two years. Like I think if you read in the discussion on how they talk about things being uh, about people making decisions on stuff coming from like essentially socialist taxation or whatever we want to call it the, this is what he called the general social use establishment so like you know your hospitals libraries blah 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 so they they made he made a point and and saying like locally say say in london people decided we want a new uh funfair park or something like that that at the level of which people want to organize whatever that level is they can get together and basically say we want to spend some general social money locally on building a funfair ride or a new opera house or a new museum or whatever it is and locally at that level at which they are going to build this for they can basically pay a, a higher local level of taxation and i think there are implications for this and they're talking about uh, congresses like workers council congresses is that at the scale that a decision kind of needs to be made within society society will come together to make that decision at the scale required and so like you know i'm i'm, I'm giving them kind of credit i'm not going to say they explicitly have said it so far in what we've read. But like, for example, if uh, Europe for was one area that was under this kind of system, together, like all of the workers' councils uh, towards in the in that whole area could come come and vote upon, say, we want to get rid of coal. And at that level, then society, like in a cybernetic sense, uh, System Five is making a determination about what to do with System One. And like systems one would have to react uh, with respect to uh, the system five society as a totality of these workers congresses, and that would uh, would feed back down into those layers. Now they don't explicitly get into that exact structure, um, which I think is probably you're right. It's to do with wanting to stay away from you know that top down Soviet model. They don't explicitly have gone into it so far. But in 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 defense of them so far, what we've read, I think they are trying to show and prioritize to show how things at a decentral level can do planning. And that's like so far in the book, that's what they've been really trying theoretically to flesh out and to to essentially critique, you know, the crappy versions of what planning was around at the time and other crappy Marxist interpretations of Marx. Maddox basically objects to producers having control over distribution um, as a principle, and that in any case, this should be irrelevant in the final phase of communist abundance. Maddox also says it's possible that some kind of Luddite smashy smashy might rule out um, socially average labor time accounting, but leave rationing possible. <laughs> um, that is a, you know, <laughs> proto-communizer sort of thought. Um, that I think that's, those are the insights that people really feel like, uh, you know, Bordigas bring to the table. And again, Paul Maddock, just a counselist. Uh, sorry, I was going to say, what does he, why does he say he thinks distribution? So what was your point on distribution? I think we should interrogate that. 
basically that consumers, producers as consumers or, or whatever, like more, they have like their own claim to their needs. There's a communist, you know, the part of the communist principle to each according to their needs is at least on the higher stage, irrelevant to from each according to their ability. If people have massive needs, and I'm not talking about like, you know, social needs, like, oh, every want is a need. You know, I'm, if you think about somebody that is on heavy dialysis or something, or, or has a lot of like medical ailments and um, has a, I don't know, you could, you, we could custom create a, a morbid example here, but I think, you know, life is complex enough to present us with situations like that. Drawing from the, the principle of higher stage communism, producers having control of consumption, does it doesn't necessarily follow that everybody gets what they need. Um, I think that's the objection. I don't have his argument spelled out in my notes because Matic is sort of just piling on a bunch of different potential objections and uh, potential, you know, other directions that things could take. Well, I feel like, a, yeah, a higher stage of communism, like the productive sphere proper would be like a significant, the people engaged in that would kind of be like, the people like engaged in hard labor, that would be like a significant minority in the society. So much of it would be like automated that most people would basically be, you know, consumers from like a strict standpoint. So yeah, that's, and that's why you could get to a point where, you know, you didn't have maybe like what we, what we could call strict labor time accounting. Um, there, like labor time is still a factor of production, so it would be considered, but it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be like the fulcrum on which everything, you know, rests. I think social. I I feel like to ensure re, uh, reproduction, you might need some accounting uh, unit like labor time. Like even in a in a say a communist society where labor time is, you know, half hour a week, and you still need some way to kind of balance the books and understand uh, what is required for reproduction unless there's going to be kind of kind of I would think quite a lot of waste so I think it would be very hard to get rid of any uh, accounting unit bar we have you know replicators or something crazy in the future I mean it would it would be a factor in planning but it wouldn't like determine you know like your access to uh you know to the store how the common you know stock of goods or whatever well i think on some yeah maybe but like i think you know on anything you, like it, it's not like in any communist society in the future no matter how productive we are we have infinite goods no one's ever going to be able to get an infinite supply of what they want you know what i mean so there's always limits so it's just a literally a matter of you know what are these limits like these might be determined physically like they literally might be determined not by what we can produce but by what the planet can sustain so i i think you know um i don't know i i think i i don't have a problem with the the unity between produ producers control and distribution i i don't really see a a problem with it to be honest i i, I think that's maybe thinking about like 500 years in the future of a problem certainly in any 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 socialist society that even spends 100 years heading towards communism a uh, communist society i i don't see it as even an, an issue personally okay that's the, that's a personal point well, of view. i mean th this comes this kind like speculation like this kind of comes up with the question of like how naturally acquisitive are people really like 
could you reach a point like could people be socialized to such a point that they could basically have access to literally everything they want and they would only pretty much just take what they need i think so you know like you you have you have an ex- pretty much functionally inf- infinite supply of water in your tap you don't just sit there and run it just for the fun of it you know i do i do <laughs> okay well well, okay, yeah, I guess you just, uh, you own me with facts and logic. Uh, communism destroyed. Yep, uh, there you well, go. Yeah, I'm becoming a Republican now. <laughs> Maddox pro- proposals that there should have been some kind of proposed system for consumer cooperatives in contact with factories to determine needs. And that this would head off one of the big objections in uh, Maddox Sr.'s own time period to communism, which it, which was that under capitalism, there was so much consumer choice, which, you know, this might seem kind of empty to us now, but during the Khrushchev era, like when the Soviet Union was trying to pivot from, you know, production of like heavy industry to, you know, post-war comfort commodities, the way that capitalist economies could, um, this was a huge propaganda point. Like, oh, you want blue jeans? (laughs) Sorry, you can't have them. Like, like we didn't plan for that. Like we didn't plan for some kind of individuality and consumption. And like a lot of us probably feel like that that is empty and like doesn't really deserve a place at the table or something. Uh, and I don't think that's the heart of his critique, but it is one of the things that um, consumer co-ops would be able to address. And there's just something fundamentally democratic about coordinating needs in that way that I think is I think it's legitimate I think there's like there's there's good reason to like account for needs in that way because we're still you know unfortunately we, we're still thinking about supply and demand this, this is economics like that's not just about markets um, we're, and you know supply and demand problems won't go away with markets we're looking for a different solution to that problem. I don't see how, like, he, he's, you know, he talks, he does talk about consumers cooperatives in in chapter chapter five, I think. I don't think there's anything in this that blocks an in, a, a dialogue between society and the producers. And, you know, and in fact, even the, even the, the distribution mechanism of the production. So say you have your... Your equivalent to a socialist Walmart, where you're coming in, even like the determination of what is sold and what is what is wasted, will feed itself automatic automatically can feed itself back to producers. So there is that kind of like consumer market effect, but also it's like certain that he he hasn't dealt with in here at all. Like it's quite static. I think is like you know how they deal with new products. What are new products? You know, directions for new design, you know, like shared components across different types of products, fixability. You know, there's loads of stuff in here that it's not dealt with. Like we have to think, assume that within society that we can uh, have mechanisms for uh, feedback that aren't just based in that market. You know, so again, I think we get towards ideas of um, system five where we say, for example, we might have decide percentage budgets in different uh, lines of trade for things like innovation uh, remodeling you know you know j- just 
general broad ideas about where we're going to put our scientific research. You know, there's, there's a lot of these things that aren't dealt with in here explicitly. And I, I don't see any reason why any of this can't... Like, I don't see the reason why shoes must be determined just by shoemakers. You know, it doesn't really make sense, right? It would be determined in reality, even in this scenario, it would be determined also by consumers. You know, if these nasty ass shoes aren't getting sold, they will be, that information will be sold back to the producers. And they say, well, why bother making these? We won't make them. We'll like have some spare time or this one is sold out. Why don't we make some more? So even there is that kind of market mechanism that would be there, even under a proper socialist society. But again, we're again, we're getting back to this idea for our overarching societal uh, needs to be propagated downwards, not in a, not in a dictatorial fashion, but in a, you know, in a kind of cybernetic fashion, I, pres- I, I think. Well, like the, the productive apparatus as a totality does have limits. And so you're going to have to like prioritize some things over others, you know, and I think that that would just be like that would be the politics of this society, like under socialism, is like determining like what are we what are we using all of this for? Like what are the broad decisions that are going to be made? But a lot of that stuff just comes from you know outputs of like research, you know, like there's all the all this stuff. There's like a lot of hype around American consumer culture, but a lot of it is just like it's the cereal box thing. You know, you go in the store, there's like 50 different cereal mascots, but the bottom of the day, it's all literally the same shit. You know. Like, it's literally all the same shit. Um, or even if you look at something like, say, the PlayStation, right? That was another thing, like, they had trouble getting, like, consumer Nintendos and shit in the Soviet Union. Like, But the PlayStation was literally just built off of hardware architecture that was funded by the Pentagon to uh, do war game simulations for soldiers. Like, they just took it and repurposed it and turned it into, like, this consumer product, you know? So a lot of, you know, a lot of, like, the array of consumer products that we have are just downstream of, like, you know... The state, um, the political actors literally saying, okay, we're going to research this shit for this reason, and then we can just kind of retrofit it to something that's useful for consumers. And I feel like, you know, that would kind of be the relationship between, like, you know, science and the productive apparatus is that people would discover things, and the society would have to say, you know, to the extent that it affected them as a whole, because there are some questions that affect everybody and not just a particular industry, should we, should we take this technology and scale it up? Um, and, yeah, so that would be, like, the big question. Um, I also, I, I was talking with Tom a little bit about this off mic. Um, have you ever read The Dispossessed, Esri? I haven't. I haven't, but living in the Bay Area, uh, you know, over the last decade, I definitely heard people that would not shut up about The Dispossessed, so I feel like I've read The Dispossessed. Okay, well, anyway, so that, it's like a utopian novel, but, you know, basically the Spanish anarchists go to the moon and like, start to build their own society. Perfecto. Um, yeah. So one thing that they seem to have, if, I, if memory serves, like in the book, there is kind of this uh, co- generalized, collectivized uh, system of production that everyone participates in. But outside of that, there are things that are still like social forms of labor that people voluntarily undertake that are not remunerated by that main system. And they call them, I think they call them like syndicates and shit like that. And that eventually, if like those things become big enough that they can become big enough or socially necessary enough they are then integrated into the general you know general social system of production i feel like that might also be something that you would get like under a socialist you know slash eventually communist system is that you know the massive productive the massive system of production would really basically just be designed to meet everyone's base needs 
and then they would be able to develop themselves freely outside of that in ways that could eventually be incorporated into it if it was if it became you know like a need see what well, i'm saying yeah like it's like the development of the development of new needs we see it in capitalism you know it's just we produce some new shit some guy comes up with an idea for something and then suddenly everybody needs an electric tin opener but like in communism you need that similar uh process there was one other point i kind of wanted to make was um I don't know if we're going to get into the value form stuff. So, sorry, I'll shut up. Well, um, well we will get into it. But um, just to respond, Jake, that's interesting because when I was reading this, I was thinking about how do we phase things out of the voucher system? How do we phase things out of labor time accounting? You know, there's that quote about angles saying money just becoming receipts, right? Like how, how does, you know, I don't know. I kept having thoughts like, are we going to, pay people for art or podcasts or Twitch streams or something when like when there's, you know, so many people willing to do this for free and it's a form of, it's like a form, it's like a strange form of performance that isn't like that, that is, is there's so many people doing it. Um, well, all, all this, all this scum would be washed away with communism. <laughs> we would not be doing this. Oh, we would good. not be doing this bullshit with communism. Yeah. Okay. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. We would, and honestly, we would probably rightfully be like marched into the sea, or if not, you know, into the fields <laughs> to do honest labor, which I 100 percent support. Well, like, we like that that like, scene from the end of uh, is it the field? Do you know that film with no. Richard Harris about <laughs> just like row over a small. Uh, field and his his son gets killed and he ends up just with a stick walking into the like the Atlantic Ocean beating the stick. <laughs> he goes, that that should be us. All right, all right. That's sounds like a, a really swell future worth fighting for. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm anti communization at this point, except for the parts that are like Pol Pot. <laughs> like those are the good parts, actually. So just Pol Pot, got it. Um, where um where I'm coming from here though is that like later on, you know. <laughs> The authors will support like wave wage differentials only upwards, like you can't get less than the wage, and only as a transitional measure, and only specific and only specifically for intellectual labor. But kind of what I'm thinking is something along the lines of like what I'm thinking of is something that responds to like people's desire to do a certain kind of labor, and like I don't know there's a certain point where a labor pool is oversaturated and people will do it regardless of remuneration essentially. And so you don't have to like keep track of that anymore. And the things, the only things that I could think of that perhaps should be remunerated at at, like a higher, you know, multiplier are things that nobody wants to do. Yeah. To sort of head off the discussion of mental labor that comes up here, you know, there's just yeah, I don't know. Devils in the details. There's a lot of ways. Well, I would I would say that rather than rather than you getting more labor chits, you just work less. So that's how the that's 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 why the whole thing is geared around reducing labor time. So it's like whatever the shit job is, or where there's a labor shortage because no one wants to do it. It's like okay, you only have to do it for like a day a week, you know, and that's it. Right, but there's still like a calculus of if nobody wants to do it, and there's a labor shortage, and you work, you know, and you work less. And it meets your like quota or whatever. If there's a quota, then it means that your time counted for more than one hour or something. 
I'm much more in the camp of Paracon of a version of um, what do they call them? Work job complexes. I don't like the idea of having kind of unskilled people, people having just unskilled labor, even if they have to work less. I just think it 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 can. It's a dynamic which could easily lead to uh, class divisions again. And I, I just that's my own personal opinion. Like my communism is, I've got to fucking wash the floors thirty percent of the time, and seventy percent of the time I got to do uh, more more enjoyable labor. That's and I would like everybody have to do the same thing. You know, uh, I, you know, maybe there is like extreme cases where, you know, Chernobyl melts down and who'd you get into? <laughs> like, pour the concrete, you know? So, but like, you know, I think in a, in a properly, uh, I, I just think as a generic thing, that's, that's what I would uh, push for. Well, I did, I did see the story about like Fukushima where like basically old people who were on death's door were just volunteering to go clean it up. Yeah. They were just they were just like, oh well, yeah, I should just do it because I'm gonna be dead in a few years anyway. Like, oh, this is, you're gonna take 20 years off my life. I'm 83, you know. That was um, that's what they literally did. You know, it, the radiation was so intense in some of the places in Fukushima when they sent the the robots in to monitor the stuff. The mon- the robot would literally only last half an hour before it would be irradiated. Everything would be irradiated and it would stop working. Jesus. Like these Jesus guys, Christ. they they literally put in. Um, they would literally send in like guys who have got six months, three months to live with pancreatic cancer to do something. And they would go in, they would get so irradiated, they'd be dead in a week. Like, and I, but I, honestly, if a disaster Fucking happened Christ. in a communist society, you know, the same thing, people would be more and would be more likely to, to put themselves forward in a, in a society that's more egalitarian. That's well, my and even, overall even instinct. like Japan just has enough of like, you know, communal values and like still some semblance of shame. Like I could not imagine any eight year olds in America doing that at all. <laughs> yeah. And, and moreover, like I kind of don't want to rely on that as a systemic systemic mechanism. I understand that that's like a crisis situation, but you know, I'm just saying there's a sense of duty. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. Or, or of comradeness. Or com- you know, literally, I, I, you know, certainly the animized societies like the UK and America would struggle if that happened. You know, to, you know that they said that if the wind was blowing in the opposite direction for that day, it was like one in three chance it was blowing towards Tokyo. That's oh the kind of it's generally it goes towards like the sea, but one in three or four days it goes towards Tokyo. And if it did go towards Tokyo, they would have to have evacuated like 40 million people from Tokyo. That's kind of wacky. I was going to say via, via the shit jobs and like labor reduction. I mean, I think you say you want to have like more fulfilling work. But yeah, you do that in the syndicates. You do that outside of like the basic productive apparatus. You do it in your free time. Which is why, like, you know, like, Marx Engels, what do they say? Like, you know, you will fish in the morning and do poetry in the afternoon and, you know, go hunting in the evening or whatever. It's a different order, I'm sure. But you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. It's, the free, it's the free time that frees you up to, you know, like, develop yourself in ways, um, you know, like, not every, like, your identity, I don't think, should be necessarily through, um, you know, what you're doing to just, like, keep society reproducing. Like right. I, I can see, I can see your point, Jake. Totally, a hundred years after the revolution. But like, if a revolution happened tomorrow and you had the new system put in and you were doing it, we would, we would have still, we wouldn't have that amount of free time. You know, we've got lots of things we need to do. We've got 
global warming. We got Africa to develop. There's loads and loads of things that need to be done. So, but this entire but, thing is an abstraction because, yeah, yeah. You, like, look, we just need to make sure we don't fuck over our planetary carrying carrying capacity to grow food. You know what I'm saying? Like, if yep. we are, if, we, if we're on a course where uh, our our planet can only sustain a half a billion people, uh, yeah, like uh, we're we'll be lucky to get barracks communism. Well, so, what, what yeah. I want to sorry, I don't want to say one thing. Like, I think that the dynamic is if 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 it like at the stage where we're working five ten hours a week, it's not so oppressive. Uh, it's not if you have that free time to do in your creative work, it's not really an issue. But like up until that time where people are working longer hours and you have a division of labor into uh, educated and grunt labor, like that in and of itself. If it takes, you know, if that takes a long period of time to to dissipate, uh, actual division in itself will lead to these goddamn careerist bastards coming back. That's my that's my main point, you know. I, I see what you're saying, but I do think part of the reason you call like the stage socialism is that you're actually kind of like healing the social body from like the damage to it done by capitalism. Like, there's just a lot. Like, I can see on some level why like medicare for all in the united states is such a resounding issue because like you know like it we it is like a very sick society that needs like some kind of like healing in like a lot of senses you know like like dealing with the fentanyl shit and all that stuff like you really do i think socialism you really would basically be like re-socializing society and doing it in such a way that it can like master master this system of production in a way um that made it like naturalized in a like a part of humanized basically like a part of you know that this book talks all about uh robinson caruso via marx where you know robinson caruso is basically doing labor time counting because and it's easy for him because it's just him and one other guy and so you you can manage a system that's that immediate you know like socialism is finding a way for society to take this like very abstract system and you know make it immediate in a sense and so, but yeah, I can see like you would basically be trying to like undo all of like the social and like psychological damage done to people and to society by capitalism. And that would be a process that would take time. But I think it would also take like, you know, like direct conscious effort, you know, and you can see some of this like in early, earlier parts of the Soviet Union with like, you know, collectivization of like household labor and like different things like that. But anyway, sorry. I think, you know, two things. One thing is that this is why I think that jobs that are highly coveted or, you know, that there's just an immense demand to be able to do this work, you know, um, or to put it another way, there is a big supply for that type of labor are the easiest to sort of like take out of the, of something, take out of the accounting system to sort of create the transitional process to a higher stage where there is less accounting um that's that's that's, def- that's the first that's thing definitely yeah I, I completely agree with that, that. that's the I first thing um you know like that's a that's a really 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 good point and and then the second thing is that uh just to wrap up the paul maddox intro is that um you know he makes a couple notes um and like there's a couple of sorted notes towards the end uh one of which talking about there needs to be some kind of regulatory institutions for the economy the, the cybernetic synthesis isn't achieved here. The other of which is that some kind of state functions, you know, would have to be directly exercised by councils. And with an expanded view of the working class, 
which I have to say, this pamphlet doesn't smack of producerism. It does think about reproductive labor. It goes as far to say, and I think this is wrong, that all production is reproduction. Um, <laughs> I think that's a little too dialectical, but I like the cut of its jib there and that um, there would have to be, and this is sort of a syndicalist idea, uh, political power also concentrated in these um, councils in, in some regard. And so a lot of the things that we're speculating on, including, you know, what level of, you know, uh, labor supply would, would be enough to phase something out of the labor time accounting market or something. There is an undeniably political edge to all of these things. So functions that were previously carried out by the state would now be subject to, you know, the cybernetic direct democracy that is mostly concerned with economics. Um, and that like, it, I don't know, like, I think Maddox points are well taken and that it sort of speaks to the more concrete things that we want to see addressed by this highly abstract proposal that, um, that simply thinking about the emergent laws of economy, which, you know, I think that the point of this is to create an economy with its own sort of laws of motion that will lead to higher stage communism. That's like the idea here. Um, and that it won't necessarily have to be a series of political decisions enforced on the economy, that there will be a tendency that develops within it towards from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. Um, but there will also have to be some voluntary conscious intervention. With that, maybe we can move on to the preface or chapter one, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, okay, so yeah, section one. I only have like one note for this, which is basically uh, the basis of the association of free and equal producers is the computation of, of the labor time which is necessary in order to produce use values. In other words, like, yeah, labor time accounting. That's, that's like, to me, that was the broad takeaway of this <laughs> chapter, but I'm sure there was more. This is a huge, this is the longest chapter. It's uh, chapter one, state communism or the free association of free and equal producers. Uh, this is where they go on the war path against social democratic and Bolshevik communism, which they both are guilt. They both believe are guilty of essentially the same error. Um, and more or less, they ch chide the Bolsheviks for just taking on the social democratic model of communism. And basically the difference between the reformist social democrats uh, that, you know, through, uh, you know, Rudolf Hilferding, you know, that, like Hilferding believes that the kind of monopolization tendency in capitalism will naturally lead to market monopolies, which are then mature and ripe for nationalization. And there you go. Uh, there's your route to state communism right there. Whereas the Bolsheviks are kind of like, who gives a shit if this is ripe for nationalization? Let's just nationalize it and then we'll centralize it. Um, you know, fuck it. Like, <laughs> but overall, the path is to what Hilferding calls, you know, uh, uh, 
a total cartel or <laughs> and that that would be that a you know a state run cartel of an industry is the communist model well yeah i mean the kernel of truth to the to the um concentration thing is presumably like concentration and cartelization of the capitalist economy kind of wipes out the petty bourgeoisie so you don't have to deal with like that kind of like reactionary section of society like that's the purchase value of that and it probably makes the process of yeah basically expropriating it simpler because it's already like internally everything's already like i guess what's uh vertically integrated or whatever like within the within the larger firms but yeah. That, that is what makes the social democrat theory a bit more humane than the Bolshevik version. Um, because if you think about what actually, how forced collectivization actually proceeded, it seems much more, for some reason, it just, it feels a lot more unjust for states to do it with their jackboot than for a market to do it by attrition. Well, um, I mean, forced collectivization, forced collectivization of the peasantry was like completely insane. Uh, and something that like Marx and Engels like explicitly warned against doing, even this is, in the German context. Yeah. So a, a lot of what happens in state communism is explicitly against what Marx and Engels. More Marx, but Engels too. Engels is a bit more wishy-washy on this stuff, but like I think ultimately he's in step with Marx that like that shouldn't have been how that was handled. However, like. I don't know. I'm just pointing. I'm pointing to why that. I think. I think you're right, Jake. That you know. That's what's politically kind of advantageous about it from this statist perspective, um, and that I don't know. I think there's a case to be made that letting the market do that shit is more humane than wiping out. <laughs> and and like, it, it may have not been the only way to do it. There might have been a more gradualist, a gradualist path towards it, but like. The, well, I mean, like, the, I'm just saying there's like a there's a qualitative difference between like expropriating like concentrated capitalist like industries and like squeezing peasants. You know? like, <laughs> yeah. the, like, like those are those are two different things. Yeah, but those like, are those are kulaks, Jake. They're kulaks. They're... Even, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But even quantitatively, like you're you're just lining up the board of directors against the wall versus like four hundred thousand peasants. You know what I mean? Like even yeah. quantitatively, even if you're going to do some badass shit to ten people, like. You know, it's 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 just it's the quantity into the quality. Well, you know, it's different. That's the thing I've heard people point out with COVID, where it's like, hey, how about instead of letting like half a million people die from this, we just like take all the money from like the richest people, and we just take their money and just give it to people and tell them to stay home for a few weeks. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like what? But um, sorry. So for, I just um, want to make the point that regardless, that I'm, you know. Right there, we're playing off the reformist and the, you know, uh, Leninist kind of models against each other. And that, as far as the authors are concerned, these are two flavors of the same mistake via Hilferding. Um, and, you know, mistake is a, is a nice way to put it, essentially. That, um, that the tendency towards concentration and then state nationalization... That's not actually the that's not actually the um, new world in the shell of the old. That's a terrifying form of domination that capitalism creates. And what communism is supposed to be, the new world in the shell of the old, is in the working class. And that um, 
what they want to do is build on the working class as it exists, not market tendencies towards monopoly or state tendencies towards absolute power. <laughs> yeah, like, and one thing I'd say is like, I, I feel like they, how they've written this stuff like in the 1930s is extremely prescient for what happened in the USSR. Holy that shit. These, te- these tendencies are baked into the cake. They're baked in. And this idea of the central economic power uh, standing of above and over the, you know, the workers, the proletariat, whatever, is a class domination. And we can see what that contradiction, how that contradiction got worked out in reality. It worked its way out back into a society ruled by the, basically, the bureaucrats which turned to capitalists. That's the tendency and like it's it's right here in this text like i was very impressed with their analysis this is like 1930 they're probably writing this in like 1928 you know what i mean like i think that's shows a deep understanding of theory and i i think it's it's excellent there's one sentence in here i thought that we should quote um about the but he says the bolshevik tendency but it's also the social democratic tendency kind of let's get it right socialists will be created through the socialist order and not conversely, the socialist order through the socialists. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's that's right. Um, that that follows from a sort of base superstructure, historical materialist way of looking at things. That you won't need some like strong-willed political effort to force this into being. There will be an economic tendency displacing capitalism that will win people over because it's better. So, like, are Jacobin, Jeremy Corbyn, and Bernie Sanders all, like, Hilferdingers? Uh, when I was reading this, I had the, pe- the People's Republic of Walmart in mind. Um, yeah. That's, like, it's, you know, the best expression of this sort of tendency. And there's actually, in the book, a sensitivity towards the difference between nationalization and socialization. But ultimately, Hilferding's point, that market monopoly leads to cartelization, which displaces uh, money. That argument is still there. In the case of Walmart and their pioneering of the ability to plan internally without money, I don't think Hilferding is wrong. It's just that to rely on that tendency as being... The, the problem is, is that the existing socialisms had been statists in the way where that tendency was the main tendency of capitalism that gets expressed in the new system. The Soviet Union couldn't quite pull it off if, you know, Walmart develops the tools to make something like the Soviet Union stick around and that sort of bureaucratic domination stick around. That's not actually like a net good. <laughs> like... That, that's why I think the sort of cockshot tendency, the, you know, the shaft blaster school, if you will, like, so frightening. So, like, not really, like, it is not the association of free and equal producers, even if they have this, like, even if there is a, um, um, a good point that we need to steal this planning technology from the capitalists, that monopoly capitalism does have a way of creating stuff that we can steal and use. Well, the purchase, okay, yeah, the purchase value of something like People's Republic of Walmart is 
you're basically demonstrating that planning can take place at scale without internal markets. Like that's literally what that is. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that is essentially so, Hilferding's. That's some that is like Hilferding's argument. Yeah, but like I think, you know, I do think unfortunately like the Russian situation was kind of like objectively fucked no matter what they did. Like if only because they basically they basically came to power like during the era of total industrial warfare, you know, like where basically the winner of war is whoever produces the most. And it's a total war that requires the mobilization of the entire society. And so like, and that's kind of also what fucked the social Democrats. Like I, the more and more, the more I think about this, the more I almost see this as like, kind of like, I don't know, like an unfortunate accident of history that like, because you know, we'll probably talk about this at a later point, but like, you know, I think, I guess the, the statism of like the Soviet Union is definitely a problem, but I find it hard to imagine like things, you know, if they had decentralized more, things not having, you know, them not just get, like getting slaughtered by the Germans to an even greater degree than they did, you know? Like, I think the, like the main problem is their material conditions. It just drives everything. Yeah. I mean, you it know, was, like, it, yeah, it's, 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 it's a real tragedy of history. And then, yeah, basically you get Stalinism as a response to like this situation. And then, every, you know, they basically dominate the third international and everybody follows that model, even maybe when they don't need to. But anyway, it's, it's complicated, um, though, because the, I think the counselists give lie to this because even this pamphlet quotes the first Congress of the Soviets as giving the alternative, you know, that any nationalization that would happen would be, have to be under social supervision of the Soviets as a whole. Unfortunately, the word Soviet became appropriated in an ideological fashion to, you know, mean the Russian system. But, you know, I generally will use the word council when I mean what they mean here is that the council system will actually be able to supervise something like a nationalization to make sure that it is an actual socialization. And that, that you know, they make the point that it's not that any industry is particularly ripe for this or not. It's either it's like, is the economy ripe for this? Because this is a type of transformation that can't really happen very piecemeal. Um, the tragedy of the Bolsheviks' seizure of power, by which I'm not referring to the October Revolution, but the coup against the Soviets, like... At like well, at like you know, months, months, and months after the actual revolution, is that there was only ever really one stab at trying to make the association of free and equal producers a thing, and once that didn't work out politically, like you know, you know, and it, it re there really was like like a, a state problem, like they. You know, there there was a demand to get a treaty signed. They couldn't get the treaty signed using the democratic organs that they fought a revolution or they supported a revolution for. Um, I do think the Bolsheviks had choices and the Bolsheviks fucking gave up on it. Um, and history will kind of, I don't know, we're still kind of in the shadow of these choices that may have had material roots. But the councilists, the tradition that we're working with today were much more clear-eyed about this. They're the only 
real tendency other than like a very, very minor tendency of social democracy that follows Martov or something, uh, the internal opposition leader in Bolshevik Russia. Other than that, the councilists are the only ones that look at the October Revolution warmly, but see the Bolsheviks turning on the Soviets, you know, as a, as a betrayal, essentially. That the support for October isn't support for the Bolsheviks, necessarily. That's what I think is so unique about this tendency. And, like, I don't know. Like, without getting further into that, the point is, is that the councilists were making this critique at the time and at this point in, you know, 1930, and I don't know how revised this is since then, um, you know, are spelling out what was going to happen in the 30s before it happens. Uh, that the Association of Free and Equal Producers becomes a prison state such as humanity has never before experienced. That's a direct quote. Um, That's not, like, it's not just a guess either. That's the best thing. No, this is... It's like a theoretical, they, like, they base, they show the basic theory of what's going to happen and why. And that's what's so impressive about this. It's it's really, really, really impressive. Like you earlier said, Esri, something about like how the councilists are most kind of true to Marx and Engels' idea of a socialist society, but they disagree in the politics. Is this the idea? Like, so I'm not that. Uh, the, the, like, I take it you're, you're meaning that they they're not deciding to try and gain political power in the revolution, is it? So the basic difference would be. The basic difference with sort of mature councilism, quote unquote, and not just the council communists as part of social democracy, is that eventually, I think the the break between the old social democrat council communists and the proper councilists is that they turn their back on the idea of a political party, um, which Marx and Engels, uh, you know, had some notion of, hard to say, like Engels certainly supported the mass political party as we know it. Hard to say what Marx really thought about this as he was kind of coy. Um, but also, I think it can basically be stated in the way that this text uses the phrase dictatorship of the proletariat as in the Bolshevik way. It doesn't claim that the council system is the true dictatorship of the proletariat as, you know, as some councilists do, or as even somebody like Martov as an internal opposition leader would, you know, Martov staked out a claim for being like, look, the class dictatorship is the true dictatorship of the proletariat. It's not a dictatorship over the proletariat, blah, 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 blah. All these points that the Marx-Bakunin debate brings up. Um, this pamphlet sacrifices the term dictatorship of the proletariat. Fine, bullshies, you can fucking have it. Like, um, we're, we're talking about a society of free and equal producers. We don't need this concept. We don't need anything like this state seizure to accomplish this concept. Um, their politics aren't fleshed out, but I think those are the political differences from the from Marx and Engels' writings. So, so the, there's one thing here um, 
I, I'd, I'd like to kind of quote, I think it gets to some of this discussion about the Soviet Union. Uh, for Marx, however, socialist society can become mature only as a whole. Separate industrial establishments or branches of such establishments can, according to him, just as little become mature and ready for, socializ- for socialization as the separate organs of an embryo in the fourth month of pregnancy can become mature and be delivered to, to lead an independent existence. So, like, I, I, I think this is kind of important for kind of us to understand. A li- to me, it seems important to understand the Soviet experience, the Russian experience. It's like that in a society that's so not proletarianized, uh, taking control of the means of production is a very different task. You know, like, if your society is, like, all peasant, you're going to have to go in and collectivize or try and take over individual people's properties as opposed to taking over, say, large productive things. And it seems to me, like, to, to proletarianize or to do what they're talking about here in, say, like, Holland today, nobody works in farms. You don't have that same actual problem if the farmers want to just work on their own farm or family farm uh let them do it you know they have their means of production it's like essentially a small firm but like you know when you're taking over like a phillips yeah, electrical company or something like that like the workers themselves like i think it i think it's true that you have to take over the society as a whole and change it in this in this big moment this revolutionary moment and like uh, the idea of having this uh, overarching state body deciding what, when things nationalize and everything, it's, it seems to me just like a, a type of a form that you would that people think they need because the material conditions aren't ready. I think, for me, there's definitely a lot of that going on. Well, it's tricky. You know, like, how does a revolution get from, like, from point A to point B? You know, that's, that's like the big question. There isn't like a clear answer. Which would, it was, which is what makes this kind of like utopian speculation hard. It's hard to say if like a revolution is successful. Like to what what extent are they are they not implementing this enough or whatever, you know? But I mean, I think you know things end up they end up pointing to the state because like the social the SP days practice of basically we're going to be an oppositional force in the government because that's the only like platform to agitate the working class or whatever. Um, and it kind of ends up the state ends up kind of being the default space because there has to be like some political site where like these differences even within the working classes is adjudicated you know like the bourgeoisie basically uses you know the, the congress as a place ideally to work out their own inner differences in the setting of like you know like macro economic policy for the things as a whole and the working class would need like a similar site whether it was like a congress yeah a congress of workers councils or a congress of soviets or there would need to be something you know, uh, it wouldn't be a state exactly, but there would have to be some, there would have to be some point where things were decided, and whether you can call it a state or not is debatable. Some kind of coordination body, you know, you can, yeah. you can have like lots of I don't lots think of I don't, in the or same whatever. way that you can't get there just to get through a revolution just through purely economic struggle. Um, oh, you, okay. you know, you can't you can't just have like a purely like workers coordinated like system of production. Yeah, I think that is the influence of the syndicalists and that there's going to just sort of be like creating the economy that will outperform capitalism and there is something marxian about that kind of idea creating the economy that will outperform capitalism will then somehow 
you know, displace capitalism and the state in the, in a in a way. I think this is done with the background of you know workers' revolutions popping off at the time and the Soviet the you know the um, the October Revolution in in mind. You know, a lot of syndicalists were willing to pick up the gun. You know, it's not like they were afraid of it. Um, so I do think that there's some. I, you know, I think there's still, like, a revolutionary in a rather, like, political sense um, perspective that's still there. But because of the way that the October Revolution goes, it muddies the waters for exactly how that is going to play out. You know, the counterpoint being, you know, Spain attempting to not build a state when the when Republican Spain cedes them territory. And that's sort of a fateful choice because they end up having to put ministers in the Republican parliament, you know, uh, the anarchists, the Spanish syndicalists. Um, whereas, you know, there, it, there is some sort of need for coordinating executive body of some kind that can not only perform economic regulatory tasks, but also, you know, do the basic Hobbesian kind of defense stuff that a state needs to do in order to prevent it from being crushed. Because it doesn't matter if your mode of production is better and will win people over if people can't defend it. Well, and that's that's what fucked the Spanish Revolution. They just didn't have enough ammunition, you know. They didn't have enough ammunition, but, but they also weren't willing to form the kind of body that you would need. So much to the point that you know, basically, an anarchist Cheka formed anyway in the Durati column, um, which is not just a post-punk group. <laughs> yeah, let's do the sound drop. <laughs> I've right. been listening to a lot um, of Duretti Column recently. It's good stuff. Yeah, I've, I haven't listened to them in a while. I should, I should hop back it's, in. It's, uh, it's a lot more like kind of chill guitar like vibes yeah. than I would have imagined from hearing them described. Shit is pretty cool. Anyway. Yeah, it was, it's all those post-bunk bands like, you know, they're, it's like a non-sequenter name basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's a tendency and not like a form. Yeah. Um, okay. So, what are we still on chapter one? <laughs> chapter Chapter one was the longest chapter. Um, uh, so, there's the the average social hour of labor. I think we need to sink our teeth into this concept. Um, it's derived from Marx's average labor time stock book um, stuff in Capital. Um, Marx assumes this system. This is their extrapolation. I don't think I agree with it. Marx assumes this system is equally applicable whether communism is still at an early stage of its development or the higher stage of communism has already been achieved. That's on um, pages 62 through 63. Um, that's, that's a more or less direct quote. See, I, I kind of do agree with them there. I think you have, even in the high form, like even if it's like we were working five minutes a day, you need some way to just organize your reproduction I, I feel like that's not a, a problem. I, I just feel like that's just like a technical small thing. As in, as you go towards a, a, a system that is essentially higher communism, the amount of labor that's involved is so small. But you just, you just, you just use it as a, just a bookkeeping accountant trick. It's not something that 
becomes a, an issue socially. Hmm. Yeah, they're like uh, later in the section they start dunking on Otto Neurath, Neurath the um, Vienna Circle Marxist, uh, who's a follower of Hilferding's uh, planning. Um, one of the hot fire disses they spit at him, you know, is that Hil- is that uh, Neurath thinks that we have a free choice as to how products are to be distributed. <laughs> And, um, like, I don't know. It's at some point, reading this, I got the sense that Neurath might have been ahead of them on some distributional principles. I have to be honest in terms of what that might look like in full communism. But but they also go into some ways later in the book where Neurath is certainly behind them. Uh, Certainly not, um, not as good at insulating for the kind of class society that could reemerge here. I think their critique of, of Neurath there is kind of correct, as in Neurath places the freedom in distribution, in like consumption, but not the freedom. Like they talk about an organic hole between the freedom of production and distribution. And personally, I think that is correct. I think it has to be an organic hole. It has to be like... You know, if, if the Soviet Union had got to their higher stage of communism, which they were in the 60s, they were saying, oh, yeah, another 20 years would be there. We're so productive at the moment. Right. I don't think you would have had communism. You would have had some kind of high consumerist society. But I think that in itself would be a different type of society than what Marx, Engels or any of us is, is looking for. We're looking for a kind of a this organic unity between production and consumption and distribution, whatever you want to call it. Sure. I, I, I do think that the quote, the later quotes in this section kind of conflict with the idea that Marx would have uh, time shits at high stage communism. But, you know, like whether I what, kind of ag- huh? yeah, I kind of I kind of agree with you, too. I kind of agree with you. Like, I don't even think you need uh the labor chits at a higher stage of communism. But I find that planning using labor time internally for for planning purposes is probably something that actually might survive. Well, it is a factor of production, so it's in there to a certain extent no matter what. You know, it's just yeah. to what extent does it affect your remuneration? I would say yes. by the time you get to higher communism, not at all. Right. That's the that's the idea. That's the overall thrust of where I would criticize this section. And the only other thing that really gets me in this book um or, you know, the main other thing that gets me in this book is the concept of average social labor. And to what extent averages apply to which calculations? Like, you know, you have a, let's say, like a personal, you have your personal labor time, which... I don't think is actually like average so much. It's just literally your personal labor time. Like in Goth. Yes, it's not average. In Goth. You get paid. Right. You get paid for the number of hours you work. Right. Okay. But the, if you're making shoes, the labor in, in, in that the, the price of that shoe for a consumer using their labor chits is the average of all the shoes. Okay. So, right. There's, there's like three levels that we can think of. Um, you know, there's the direct social, excuse me, there's the direct labor expended by the producer, by the individual producer. 
Um, and in Gothic Critique, it's very clear that we're not using a social average to remunerate the producer, right? It's their one hour of work, you get one hour, you know, one hour of labor chits, right? Correct. It's direct labor. Direct labor. Then there's um, the firm level of an average. That would be um, significant for one reason or another. Initially, I thought that the firm average of, you know, labor time was going to be the internal method by which the firm organizes itself. But I think upon further reading, that turns out not to be so. And then you have the total um, social average labor time for a particular like co- commodity or, or, or something. Commodity is the wrong word for a product. And it makes sense for when you go to the labor chit store that you're going to pay the social average, the total social average. Um, what's unclear to me is a lot of other things. And this is the devil in the details. Because if you have something like firms are planning using total social average and they're remunerated according to the total social average, this is the thing. The devil's in the details. Tom, you think that this is relatively clear. I don't think that this is written very clearly. You know, if, if firms are using the total social average, this is an if statement, a hypothetical. If firms were remunerated, at the total social average. This would clearly be a reinscription of the law of value. Also, like going down the line, if individuals were remunerated at a either total social average or, or a firm average, this would also be a reinscription of the law of value. This only keeps its communist character insofar as social averages are kind of put in their place and used in the right way. And so I thought that the book wasn't as clear as it could have been about this, considering how important this would be, not for the main thing. The main thing that they seem to be concerned with is reinscribing a big, hulking, centralized apparatus of domination. Everything they're talking about here is good for that. But the real devil in the details for me is the law of value and making damn sure that that doesn't reemerge. Um, so that is, Tom, I, I think you basically come down on the side of that that is well accounted for in this book. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very, very important thing there that's, that you're trying to get at with the law of value get back in. And I think what they, what they have said is, so a person will get remunerated for the number of hours that's it doesn't matter about your efficiency okay your your it's it's your hours uh you work 10 hours you get 10 labor chits whatever 10 hours labor chits one of the main problems is is like if you've got an inefficient firm and you've got an efficient workers council yeah and one is creating shoes at a certain price the two shoes when in the marketplace does the consumer have to pay different levels and they say no a shoe is a shoe so for the so for to make it fair on the consumer, they're buying at the socially average price for this shoe between f- shoe manufacturers. Okay, for reproduction of the individual firms, they get their full reproduction needs back. 
they're not rep- they're not giving given the average so if they produce 10,000 shoes and it's one labor hour each they say they're not giving 10,000 uh, and that's just it they're giving their needs for reproduction so if they're an inefficient firm they actually do get a more stuff to do what they need to do but the so what they're saying is the dynamic of how you get these firms to the same levels of reproduction is not done through a marketplace. It's not done dictatorially like you're only getting what you deserve. Uh, for You only get what their, your output is. What they get is their needs for reproduction. But the actual mechanism for regulating these shoe-producing firms is a, a council of shoe producing firms so like if there's five shoe factories those five shoe factories meet up and they determine what's required to bring factory a up to its up to its speed or or whatever and they determine what the the needs and uh are for say new technology or new stuff so it's done at a producer level so you don't have this kind of uh, thing of profit and losses and firms go on bust but you have like a kind of a communal shoemaking network or whatever that decide how we can improve so the actual the actual layer at which shoe factory that is skiving and just basically saying right lads we're going to say we're working 40 hours we're doing five hours we're only turning up and producing three shoes it's a dos they will be disciplined by shoemakers who say, hey, you're taking the piss out of us. I-, I think that's the level at which things should be done. And I don't think you have that same idea of introducing the value form because the main, one of the main reasons in the value form is what, are your, what, is, what is the overarching requirement uh, of capital is to, to save labor costs, okay, to reduce down labor time. Uh, they want to keep production up, but they want to reduce labor costs. Okay, so you don't have that dynamic. Like it's it's perfectly reasonable for all of the shoe factories to say we only want to, the people working there. We only want to work ten hours a week. They have that choice. They don't have to just arbitrarily increase production. They don't have to do it. Yeah. So like that actual pressure on like that the value form is is not operating there. It, it, it's it's different. But you what one weakness I think that they don't get into is that. Like, let's say all the shoe factories get together and they go, listen, lads, we could have a sweet deal here. We could let up. We could just let on the shoe factory. Like, shoe making is really hard. We can work 10 hours a week, get paid for 20. Everybody keeps dumb and away you go. Now, they did try and bring in something later on at a higher level where you have an average, like, of all products and the output like the productivity of all products and you might be able to see well this one is slightly this one's way skewed right but i don't think that overall average of all products is even anything that would be meaningful i think that it's not a meaningful thing but so i do think that there is that you could have shoe cartels operating siphoning stuff and that is definitely an issue that I don't think this deals with. And to be honest with you, if people can skive and if people can figure out a way to get like twice as much stuff for nothing, that that will become an issue. So like, uh, like I do think that there is a a need for understanding how to control that in a non-hierarchical, non-like asshole way. 
but uh, I do think that there is a risk there. No, that's a good point. They do have a third layer of averages. That's the overall productivity factor, um, which is kind of hard to wrap one's mind around. But the whole point of this is to posit. It's to do what I thought that you couldn't do, is that instead of in-kind planning where you're thinking about, you know, as a lot of the times, like the Soviet Union, when it wasn't using money, did do in-kind planning. You know, they were thinking about how many, you know, of each concrete resource was going into something. And they never, they never, you know, picked up the uh, Leontiev input-output matrices or whatever and, like, created a system where they were going to, like, look at things with a, assuming a fixed denominator. And it did make things incredibly complex or whatever. I don't know, like, this assumes the labor time denominator in, in a way that I kind of thought would be impossible without it reintroducing the value form. And that's why I'm so on guard against that. Um, but I think what you're saying is that, and, I, and I, I think I agree with this, it's just, it's really important to sketch out where the averages go into play and, and where they don't. If so, which average? Because that is the exact mechanism by which the law of value would be reinscribed. And that's what the system needs to be ironclad against. If you think about it, like you are the worker, you're getting paid your, your, ten, your, your hours which you work. The law of value is not coming in and saying you have to work twice as hard yeah, now. Yeah, no, that's the dystopian possibility that this system has to be very clearly not doing. It needs to follow. And I think because it's building off of critique of the Gotha program, it's already kind of assumed on their part that, oh, yeah, you read Gotha critique, right? We don't even need to say this. I think you just do need to put it out there that because it's the, the text is just not all that concerned with warding off the law of value. What it's describing would very well defend against the law of value if, Tom, you have the correct interpretation of it, which at different times in reading the book, I got different impressions. We did one with GIU on this one by Zhou Jing Zhang, I think a Korean guy, and he was dude, talking about all this labor time planning. And then right at the end, he goes, and but you should probably use socially necessary labor time for like, I think for paying people because we want to increase our productivity. And straight right there, like that is the flaw straight away. So this doesn't, if you think of like, like it, it, it allows the, the shoemakers to, do, to, to choose how do we want to organize our production to be more efficient. You know, and there's no reason why the shoemakers might just go, we only want to work 10 hours a week. We only want to produce these amount of shoes. You know, somebody else can come in and work those other, 20 hour, other 10 hours if we need to produce more. You know, like at no level does anybody being forced to work more intense or, or less intense. Um, the layer of, what, what do you call it, like, uh, that's imposing any kind of, like, norms within the workplace is the workers themselves self-imposing and not an external thing. The dynamic is internal to them and it's democratic and it's their own thing. I, like, I think that it really does define, I think it is correct. I think this is what Marx meant by labour time planning. This is, this is, this is Marxian labour time planning, I think, I think you can't guard from ever there being any kind of like external imposition because 
you know, like your firm is producing stuff for like society as a whole, and it has to. It's not social if it's not useful for anybody. You know, like because you, you so like there there has there yeah. I mean, there is some level of like discipline that will come in here, but you basically have to like give the workers a rubric by which they can account for what they're doing as much locally as much as possible, but also an incentive structure. Uh, put in place such that they have like a reason to be more productive in a way that again I think the society would be geared towards like reducing socially necessary labor and so I could imagine you know if I'm interpreting this correctly there might be within like you know the shoemaker cartel like some firms that you know are more efficient and so for them those firms are great because you don't have to work that much at those firms because they already get their work done. You know what I mean? Like exactly, exactly. And the, but like, and the weaker the yeah. weaker firms, it sucks to work there because you probably have to work a little more to, to to like you know to get to meet up to what the average is. You know, and that average would probably shift over time. You know, as like the as the productive apparatus develops. Yeah. So towards the association of free and equal producers, this establishes the focus on social reproduction and the direct perception of individual producers to specific social products, as opposed to some central planning statistics bureau, which introduces all of the epistemological problems of trying to figure out what's happening on the shop floor. Because there is a lot of good literature on this, and it is borne out in the history of the Soviet Union. If there isn't like a lot of autonomy in how workers can plan their own lives based on you know, plan their own plan their working lives based on the demands coming from outside whether that's from the stalinist bureaucracy or it's from you know consumer co-ops or something they'll fudge the numbers they'll fucking lie they'll lie like and that's i don't think you need to be like i don't know i, I don't think that there's anything wrong with the kind of human that wants to like have autonomy over their lives so I, I ain't even mad at those workers that are lying about their quotas or whatever. It's just that you need to de- you need to design a system where people are free enough where they don't feel the need to do that shit. <laughs> and, you know, they won't feel the need to, uh, you know, lie about their direct perceptions to in order to fudge quotas or something. <laughs> um, for uh, Neurath and Hilferding and the Leninists... They don't get this reliance on the direct perception of individual producers. Uh, it re- retains the shroud of mystery and creates a need for managerial authority. This is, you know, essentially Weber's Max Weber's critique of complex society as as creating a need for managerial authority, um, and that s- simply replacing the leaders and leaving the relations of production intact simply won't do for communism. Again, when I was kind of chiding communizers, it's really Duvet who thinks that Bordigas adds so much to the communization synthesis or whatever. Um, This is like, people are really making a straw man of the council's tendency. This, both aspects of the communizing synthesis are already basically here. I think it's excellent because it lays down this idea of like, I don't know if we came to the equation yet but it's like p plus c equals l like every individual factory can just see like we've got our means of production we've got our wages and uh, our labor and sorry our means of pro- your means of production fixed and, and circulating and our labor and here's our output 
Yeah. And every it's so easy for each factory to do that. It's so transparent. You can just say, here's our cost. We bought all this lump of leather. Here's our, all our laces. Here's our sh- rubber and here's our shoes output and here's our stuff. It's very transparent for everybody to see what's involved. There's no like crazy stuff going on. It's really transparent for all worker, workers in, a, in an industry to understand what's going on. Like there's none of this mystification at higher levels of, you know, a, a, a guy from Gosplan saying, oh, you've got to increase your quota by 20 percent. And everybody going, oh, Christ. And then they they lie or they scheme to get around these things. You know, there's not like top down necessary structures of like people holding on to certain bits of information so that they can have power within the system. Like, you know, I think this whole idea is excellent and you could like. All of this stuff, for example, could be published, you know, it could be published in a blockchain that can't be <laughs> fucked with, you know what I mean, yeah. literally. And it's like you could see every fucking factory is these inputs, these outputs. Everybody can go in. Everybody can see each sector, the shoemaking sector. This is their one. This is the like, I don't know, hairdressers. Here's the massages like, you know. Do we believe these statistics? Are somebody skiving? Like this, this well, you can real... look at the outputs and just see, like, is, is junk coming out of here? Or they are, are, is le- is less coming out than they're saying? Like, you know, then you then you can you can probably go and investigate and see. You know, it's like, well, why? You know, where are the why are the pro- why, where are the where are the problems here? Like, why are you lying about this? You know? Yeah. Although you know this, this is done in the context where there isn't you know the ability for a statistical planning bureau to check against, you know, what the workers are self-reporting. And this is saying to rely on the sort of self-reporting, more or less, because workers, you know, are the ones going to the councils and planning. And the reason that you can trust workers self-reporting is because they have their own productive power and they're part of decision-making. Does it not also get into bookkeeping, like generalized bookkeeping in later chapters where it talks about how all this information will be uh, available? So I think it does deal with that. But the reason that you can trust that information without having to check it somehow is because of this direct, the direct perception of individual producers to their specific social products. And it's assumed that, you know, they're not going to fudge it because they don't have to. There's no systemic pressure to fudge it. And it's funny what they end up saying about Neurath and Hilferding and the Leninists that don't get this. And, you know, there's a shroud of mystery that leads to managerial authority. He essentially says that these parts of Marx's free association of producers lead people to see Marx as a, you know, Essentially, he's an anarcho-liberal. He uses, I think, the term liberal anarchist or something. But, like, <laughs> like this is the part that people feel like is very utopian. Um, and there is a part of this that seems sort of hard for me to believe without cybernetic coordination of some kind. It is, on its face, in 1930, a bit hard for me to swallow that this is all you need. But I think that I think that there's something better about this, about a system that makes it so that people don't have to lie because there's no like personal stake in lying about it. Um, the only po- the possibility here is maybe that on a firm level, 
there might be so that managers might get it in their heads to lie about it. The only way to circumvent that is to sort of, you know, do away with the idea, do away with the need for management in that way. And that's like a cybernetic punch up here that isn't actually available at the time of writing. What I would say, Esri, as well, is that like the, in those three components that we'll talk in our equation, we'll presumably we'll do next week, P plus C plus L. P is your fixed uh, capital. C is your circulating capital. Those two inputs will have to be purchased with, with labor certificates. So like there are records of them. They can't lie about them. The only thing they can lie about is their L. So they can lie about how much work they put in. And definitely they can do that. And that's where like kind of the, 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 they are regulated internally by all shoe producers or whatever. But they're also going to be, if all of them got together as a giant cartel and says, let's DOS, lads, let's DOS. Um, like society will have to be able to uh, deal with that happening. And I think that's how the openness of all this accountancy stuff and like you can actually see like, you know, shoemakers are only producing these, but like, you know, trouser makers are have double the output. Is that is that feasible? You know, and society will self-regulate through its openness and transparency. I think that's how you would think it would have to operate. Right. It does do away with the impetus to lie at the producer level. There's no, you know, there's very little reason, you know, to say, oh, you, you get double, you get twice the pay for half the work. Like if you're saying you're working 20 hours, 40 hours a week and you're only doing 20, like and everybody in that sector does it, you're getting twice your, your, your it, it, it's in your no, interest. No, no, but th- that's the thing. It would ha- have to happen on like a firm level or, or it's more likely that that would happen on a firm level or even like a sector, industrial sector level. A sector right. level. Yeah, sector. Right, yeah. like that it would be some kind of greater cartel process r- r- more so than, I mean, you look, there might always just be people that are willing to try to game the system, no matter how fair it is, on an individual level. But at least a lot of the incentive structures for that, you know, wouldn't seemingly, in this most abstract form, wouldn't be there. Um, that, you know, you could just do whatever, your, your 10 hours or whatever. And like, and it doesn't really matter how productive you were, you just did them. There, the issue seems to me more. And... I'm, w- I'm willing to admit that, you know, there are always people that will game the system. But, um, but the issue seems to be more on the higher levels, like you're talking about, Tom. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be, couldn't you, if, if the processes of production were transparent and you knew how you were making things, you know, and their system was, like, insanely inefficient, I feel like it'd be pretty easy for somebody to, like, point that out, you know. Or even, you know, acquire, like find a way to acquire factors of production to build like a more efficient system and then do it, you know, like I've been like, I feel like the shoemaking sector, you know, whatever, like it would be very easy for someone to go like, look, look, we can just take an automated factory that literally has like one employee who just pushes a button, you know, and then they would go and do that. And then, you know, I'm sure the shoemakers would be pissed, but no one one would ever be mad at them anyway because they were slacking, you know, see what I mean? Now, it's easy to imagine that, of course, now because of the way that, you know, the means of communication have been developed. Um, but it, I think I feel like transparency is kind of like the key to this entire thing. Mm. I, and, ostr- and ostracization. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, seriously, well, in, in communism, I want to see ostracization. Used, oh, man. Like, I don't know. I don't want communism to be anything like Twitter. Uh, 
Like, I mean, <laughs> you do. I'm sorry, you do have to punish like antisocial behavior. Yeah, I think so. I, I do definitely think so. But you, you also have to treat it as like a society. I mean, there's still some level of individual responsibility, but you also treat it more as like a society-wide problem. You know? Well, right. It's you don't want your entire economy to run on fear of ostracization. Like there, there's <laughs> no. an element of goodwill here that is almost unthinkable to us because we live in a much more cynical time and the experience of the Soviet Union showed us what workers do in an alienated work environment so that it's very hard to... If there is a bone of contention that communizers have against the councilists here is that we're trying to describe workers that show up to the factory and put in just as much work as they're supposed to. You know? And you know, assuming that their self-reporting is going to be accurate because they have the goodwill for the collective, right? With, like, if you think of a cap- if you think of the factory as a capitalist form with all the alienation built in, the way that Marx describes factories in capital, Marx in capital does not describe the factory as a neutral institution. He, he describes the factory as a capitalist institution, as an alienating institution. Um, So we do have to like take into account that maybe people don't want to work at the factory and they're going to fuck around. Like, and that's where I think some kind of, you know, bong rip blockchain, cybernetic pain signal checks, you know, that's, that's the part where, you know, Neurath, Hilferding and the Leninists, have a little bit of a point, you know, that that is enabled by new technologies in a way that doesn't create the Weberian problem of complex society generating the domineering bureaucracy. Well, I think a lot of this is probably, I think, a historical question because, you know, I think the real the real question what we have to ask going forward is like, what happens when you have a society where very few people are working in factories, you know, and you're you're transitioning from a capitalist society where the means of production have already been developed to such a point, you know, uh, because you know everywhere, like if everywhere that you know there either aren't unions like holding things in place or uh, labor costs are so cheap that it's cheaper than automation, they automate shit. You know, I remember I remember hearing something about like uh like the um. An executive at Hyundai was like, "Yeah, I would just want to automate this factory 100, percent but like the unions won't let us do it here, you know." So that's like, you know, it's almost like the means of production are at such a different stage. It it raises different questions about, it, especially about like the relationship between what he calls like the um the general the G what was it GI something general anyway. social labor. Yeah, how how you know like productive versus reproductive and other sectors of the economy and what the, what the relationship is there and how that's coordinated. But I think that's probably a question for later chapters. All right. Just to close out, the moments of disillusionment here are the spon- number one, spontaneous council system developing and working. Two, disarming of councils by Bolsheviks. Three, growth of the statist economy. I think that's why you see this emphasis on um, this emphasis on preventing a bureaucracy more so than preventing the law of value and um, all of our criticism here. I think, I, I mean, I think we have fair critiques of this, but like 
this is a pretty durable system, especially if we're substituting um, contemporary technologies here. The possible communize the pops pop excuse me the possible communization critique is probably less about relation to production, which this book is all about, really relation to production, and more about forces of production and the overall production process, um, and like, you know, what if there's not enough cobalt to distribute to the factories or, you know, we politically decide that cars aren't what we want to create with our cobalt, you know what I mean? You know, our, our scarce resource or whatever. And so these questions about the production process and forces of production are probably the, so far, the, the critique that communizers can bring back to the table because they don't really want to talk that much about productive forces because that's what their idea, you know, their enemies do. That's what the Bolsheviks and the Leninists are doing. So we can think of these things in a different way because we're not necessarily carrying that flag. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Yeah. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for sitting in. Welcome to part one of 26. <laughs> God damn no, it. No, no. We're, we're going to, this is the longest chapter. <laughs> this is the longest chapter. We're going to be, we're going to we're going to cruise through these other ones. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, thanks again to Tom O'Brien for stopping by. If you want to get hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com or contact us on uh, any number of social media sites that we're located on. If you want to support the show, uh, you can uh, leave us a good review on iTunes or subscribe to our Patreon. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>